This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. My usual Friday night co-host Aaron Bastani is having a week of paternity leave. But I have a wonderful replacement, Rivka Brown. And welcome back to Navarra Live. Hi, Michael. How's it going? Very well. A long day today. And we have a lot to talk about coming up tonight. The government are sending in inspectors to a London council. It's just, just a sort of boring, regular act of bureaucracy, or is there something more sinister going on? Liz Truss is in the United States again, this time cozying up to Steve Bannon to flog her new book. What does that tell us about the future of the Conservative Party? And we'll finish the show with a look at me on GB News calling out their owner. What a way to end the week. First story. The moral panic over people protesting against a genocidal war is still in full swing. The former Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, has warned in The Telegraph that Islamists are bullying Britain into submission. Handily, the picture editor chose an image which shows what this is really about, people wanting to stop innocent civilians being bombed. The article is predictably hyperbolic. Braverman writes this. They started with the Jews. There were stern words of disapproval from the top, but things only got worse. The Islamist cranks and left-wing extremists then took control of the streets. The police looked meekly on, and then they came for Parliament. On a day when Keir Starmer should have shown strength of character, he bowed to the mob, abused his position, and undermined the integrity of Parliament. Conventions aside, the Speaker's legitimacy destroyed and democracy denied. Trust was shattered by Starmer's grubby backroom deal. The mask has slipped. In hock to the Islamists, he is responsible for one of the most shameful days of our democracy. The truth is that the Islamists, the extremists, and the anti-Semites are in charge now. They have bullied the Labour Party, they have bullied our institutions, and now they have bullied our country into submission. Now, remember what has provoked all of this absolute mind-blowing fear-mongering, right? So on, on Wednesday, the SNP put forward a motion which was calling for a clear ceasefire um, in, in Gaza, or clearly was calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. The Labour Party didn't want an up-down vote on it, so they tried to override convention and have their amendment heard. Um, you saw Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, speak to Parliament on Wednesday, and he said, oh, this is an old, you know, the convention that says we shouldn't do this is old, it's outdated, it's um, archaic, um, and the Labour benches, they all cheered. Happy moment. Um, we've sort of won our our parliamentary battle in terms of getting the agenda in a way which is helpful to our partisan interests. What then happens? The Conservatives, the SNP, they kick up a stinker, understandably. Um, and then suddenly, you know, because this sort of, uh, the, the smart ploy has somewhat backfired on Lindsay Hoyle, he comes up with this new reason. Oh, the reason that I said it was archaic is in fact, even though I didn't mention this yesterday, this is what he's saying to, to Parliament on the Thursday, is in fact because there were such severe threats from everyone, or you know, the risk of a terrorist attack to our MPs. Now, of course, there was a peaceful pro-Palestine protest, or I don't even want to say pro-Palestine, pro-ceasefire protest, right? Because you don't have to be you know, pro-Palestine to think that bombing um, civilian kids and, uh, and women and bunching up 1.5 million people next to a border and then bombing them again. You don't have to be you know, pro-Palestine um, to, to think that's wrong. So there's a pro-ceasefire demonstration outside Parliament, completely peaceful. That has now been sort of castigated, um, smeared as a bunch of potential terrorists, all because Lindsay Hoyle did the Labour Party a favour and then wanted to cover his back, right? Of course, Suella Braverman jumps at this opportunity. She loves it. 
Um, in that article, she was talking about how you know police need to be tougher against these pro-Palestine demos. Um, by the way, more people were arrested at the um, coronation of Prince Charles, well, King Charles, I suppose now, than were arrested on the largest of the pro-Palestine demos. So the idea that these are out of control and making everyone terrified to go to central London, I just don't buy. Mr. Willa Braverman isn't the only distinguished opponent of extremism piping up in Westminster today. John Woodcock is also making himself heard, the former Labour MP who campaigned against Labour and then was rewarded by Boris Johnson with a peerage, has published some new recommendations. Um, he does so, of course, as the Tories' anti-extremisms are. Now, according to The Telegraph, Lord Walney, so that is John Woodcock, will use a forthcoming report to urge Rishi Sunak to extend buffer zone powers, which currently cover schools and abortion clinics, to constituency surgeries, parliament and council chambers. Lord Walney's review, which was set to be submitted shortly after the October 7th attack, but has now been updated, will call for the expansion of expedited public space protection orders. These orders were backed by MPs in 2022 and approved by the Lords last year following anti-abortion rallies at clinics across the country and demonstrations against COVID vaccines outside schools. Now, this is, I mean, I'm going to use this word a few times now, I think ridiculous, right? So you, you have these laws which were intended to stop protests in incredibly sensitive situations, right? So someone is going to get an abortion. I think it's absolutely right that you say you should have a buffer zone around an abortion clinic so you can't have religious zealots sort of hassling people as they are sort of going through probably, you know, a very difficult moment, right? I think it's emotionally taxing getting an abortion, right? So the idea that people should go up to people in that vulnerable situation, I think is, yeah, that, that is somewhere where we should sort of legislate to stop that happening. The same thing with, with COVID vaccines and schools. You know, schools is where families are taking their kids, right? Small children. And if you've got these people who are saying, oh, you know, don't get the vaccine, da, 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 da. You know, that is, I think, you can see there's a vulnerability there. We're talking about children in one case. We're talking about people going to get an abortion in the other. Now, suddenly, these laws are saying, oh, you know who else needs this? Parliament. Parliament. Now, of course, of course, I, I think we absolutely have to take seriously the safety of MPs. Two MPs in less than a decade have been killed by violent extremists, one on the far right, one um, who was a radical Islamist, right? That's terrifying. I would actually be in favor of you know, MPs having security, for example. But it is just completely bizarre that this parliamentary maneuver on Wednesday, which was essentially Labour not wanting their MPs to have to vote you know, for or against an awkward motion that might have made them unpopular in their constituencies, is now being used as an excuse. We sort of jumped to this situation whereby the mere act of protesting outside Parliament is somehow intimidating. You know, if, if you were to think of where is the most obvious place in the country to go and protest? Parliament, right? Parliament is not a school. It's not an abortion clinic. It is the centre of, of sovereignty in this country. So if you were going to protest anywhere, it would be there. And now we're, we're suddenly saying that, you know, because uh, we don't like these protests, um, the, the protests should be somewhere else. I mean, it's, it's, I think, completely outrageous, completely ridiculous. Woodcock is one of three ex-Labour MPs who campaigned against their own party and then were given plum jobs by Tory prime ministers. Woodcock and Ian Austin went around the country in 2019 with a billboard billboard, sorry, saying that Jeremy Corbyn was a disgrace to his country and telling people to vote Tory. After the election, both were given peerages by Boris Johnson. So the other MP who left Labour and got a peerage was John Mann, 
Um, in that case, it was Theresa May who gifted him the title of Lord. Um, she also made him a government advisor on anti-Semitism. Um, now, Ian Austin, so one of the three, was on Sky recently sparring with John McDonnell. They were speaking amid the row over Labour's now suspended candidate in Rochdale. If you really want to show the Labour Party's changed, right, I would kick out John McDonnell. I would kick out all, all, the, all of those people. They, okay. All of the, I mean, I really would, because I, I think that, you know, a long history of supporting extremism, okay. all of that, and, you know, I think they've got to deal with that as well. Okay. I really do. John McDonnell, do you want to come back? It's difficult to deal with the, the sort of unreality of it. Ian has had a long and obsessional hatred of Jeremy Corbyn on a whole range of issues, I think he's... I think he's just, it's, it's produced an instability in him. And as a result of this, this is the sort of behaviour that we get. He's been made a lord, you know, a full-time job for life, by Boris Johnson for attacking Labour. That's why he was given the lordship. That clip was from a couple of weeks ago, but we didn't show you it at the time, and I thought now was a good excuse. Um, Rufka, these sort of free ex-Labour MPs who all went to sort of be given peerages with the Conservatives and now are just constantly coming out with arguments as to why we have to sort of limit free expression or the right to protest. I mean, what, what can we possibly say about them? It's emblematic of... <laughs> What, well, what's really going on here, which is, you know, Suella Braverman says that Britain has been taken over by a mob. She's entirely right, except that mob are not pro-Palestine protesters. They're politicians. They're the elected politicians of this country. Our government is run by a bunch of mobsters, people who, as you've just pointed out, get not cash for honours, but in this case, bullying for honours, people who do the government's bidding and attack the leader of the opposition and then get rewarded with lifetime uh, cushy jobs. Um, but fundamentally, and, and perhaps more importantly, we've just had a week, you know, Suella Braverman's Braverman is writing, by the way, uh, someone who's had a litany of allegations of bullying herself, at the end of a week when the leader of the opposition has effectively bullied the Speaker of the House, um, threatening him with losing his own job, um, to, to, to allow the overriding of our democracy in the form of allowing this Labour amendment. And that is in the context of all of our politicians in this country fundamentally overriding the will of the people. 71% of people support a ceasefire um, in Gaza. It's one of the most uncontroversial issues of our time. And yet our elected representatives are riding roughshod over the will of the people and not just the will of the people, but over the highest court in the world. The International Court of Justice has ruled that states, including the UK, should not be materially supporting Israel's commission of war crimes. And yet we're continuing to do so. You know, you've got people like Declassified showing that there are currently US um, and UK military equipment and forces on the ground in Gaza right now. And so, you know, when, when we're talking about the mob and and you know this this idea of a kind of uh, these brown hordes really we should be talking about the mobsters in number 10 the mobsters in the palace of westminster right now it's no surprise you know in that in our country we have one of the lowest rates of of trust in our politicians something like six percent of people um according to ipsos mori have full trust in our political system and it's no surprise you know we, we we're run by a group of people who think that they can totally ignore not only their constituents but but the highest law, not only in the land, but in the world, and get away with it. You know, from, from what I can see, I mean, you've you've sort of cited there the actual level of criminal, criminality at these protests. I think Open Democracy did um, a, a study that showed that it's lower than at Glastonbury. Um, 
you know, the, the worst thing that I can see is people shouting at Angela Rayner over a loud hailer, you know, or picketing, doing kind of pickets outside uh, MPs' houses. You know, we have to ask ourselves, why at this moment in time um, is the question of MP safety being taken so seriously? I mean, as you've said, we've had the horrific murders um, of, of Amos and, and Cox, but, but also since that period and throughout that period, continual attacks on MPs, particularly MPs of colour. Diane Abbott, who received more, um, you know, over half of the abuse that MPs got on social media before the 2017 election. Absana Begum, you talk about having security. Absana Begum does have security. Absana Begum had to go home in secret from the Labour, the recent Labour Party conference after threats on her life were made because of her support for the PSC, you know, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, uh, non violent civil you know one of the most kind of uh sort of mild-mannered pro-Palestine campaigns that there is. So when we talk about MP safety, and that safety is exclusively focused on expressions of solidarity with Palestine and not on the the kind of large number of MPs that that face abuse for all sorts of other reasons, including their solidarity with Palestine, ironically, we have to ask, why is this issue being raised now and in whose defence? You know, you mentioned John Woodcock. Who is John Woodcock? As well as being a former Labour MP, he's also one of the co-owners of the Jewish Chronicle. You know, ironic, given that he's not Jewish, as far as I know. Um, but, you know, that paper, as many people here will know, has week after week been going after expressions of pro-Palestine solidarity and specifically the marches as sort of hate marches. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this, you know, what John Woodcock genuinely believes? Or is this a continuation of a line that's being pushed, not just by Braverman, but by an, a newspaper that he himself owns? I think it probably is difficult to say, you know, what's the worst MPs have had in this period? We don't really know. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I think MPs probably do receive death threats all the time, especially on on, on social media. Uh, but what I think is really disgraceful is it's not only a sort of an unwillingness to demarcate legitimate sort of protest from abuse. It's this sort of active, active sort of willingness um, and commitment to conflating those two things, right? It's really important in a democracy that we can separate what is you know, an expression of a political opinion and what is abuse. And there is just a, a proactive attempt to, to muddy that water and for in completely cynical ends. I mean, I was saying on, um, on, the, on the Wednesday show that sort of, you know, I thought it was a shame that the, the SNP motion was, didn't get this up-down vote, but I sort of struggled somewhat to get very, very exercised about parliamentary procedure. And I have to say, since then, I have got a bit more exercised. And that's because, you know, if, if the Labour Party had said this was... Or if the Labour Party have said nothing, you know, the, the, the truth of the matter, I think, is the Labour Party faced an awkward vote. Um, they did some parliamentary manoeuvring, um, which was helpful for them, by the way, because instead of the news being whether or not Labour voted for a ceasefire, the news was, oh, parliamentary procedure has been overridden to some degree. People care about a ceasefire. People do not care about parliamentary procedure being overridden. So if you're the Labour Party, you have, you know, avoided a damaging story um, and got a story which is, you know, neither damaging nor positive. It's just sort of irrelevant story. So so they would have been pleased with that. Now, if they just sort of shut up at that point, fine. But instead, what they said is, oh, yes, the real reason we did this is because of these, these hordes of extremists who are outside. And, and so instead of owning their somewhat, you know, cynical, but I don't think, too, you know, people will disagree, but I think it's sort of cynical, but I'm not completely outraged by it. They have now made it an excuse to launch a moral panic against politically active Muslims in this country, which I do find a point. I, I am outraged about that, right? 
it's okay to do some sort of parliamentary maneuvering, but to do some parliamentary maneuvering and then say it's because of, well, essentially say it's because of scary Muslims, right? I, I, I think is unconscionable, especially as it has. I mean, if anyone's been on Twitter or watched any of GB News, we'll have that coming up later in the show. You will see that this has been used as an excuse to launch into the most Islamophobic tirade from from all quarters. I know this was on um, the show last night that Moya was was hosting, so you will be very much aware of that. But I do, yeah, as I say, parliamentary procedure, not that fussed about. A political maneuver and then blaming people who want to stop a war, disgraceful, frankly. Let's go to our next story. The government has announced it's sending inspectors into a London council over suspicions it misspent public money. Um, that sounds reasonable. But is that all there is to it? Well, yesterday, Michael Gove's Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities launched a best value inspection into Tower Hamlet's council. The council is led by this man, for Rahman, who was elected under the Aspire Party, a sort of party which he Founded. Now, in a letter to the council's chief executive, civil servant Max Saul set out a long list of Gove's concerns, including this, the appointment in June 2022 of Mr. Alibor Chowdhury as deputy head of the mayor's office and the intention to recruit eight policy advisors, not directly employed by the authority, to an expanded mayoral office. Overall increase in staff is 27 at a cost of £1.4 million, creating the risk of a dual council sidelining officers of the authority in decision making. Now, £1.4 million does sound like a lot, but it's only 0.1% of the council's total budget of £1.3 So it's not a phenomenal um, amount. Um, other concerns um, raised by the government of the council's grant-making processes, its decision to in-house Tower Hamlets homes and leisure services, which to me sounds like probably a good idea, and the mayor's poor attendance at certain committee meetings. Um, now, as you'll probably have guessed, I am no expert on what counts as best practice for a local mayor, um, and I'd normally be reluctant to wade into a bureaucratic dispute between local and central government, but in this case, it does seem plausible that this is all part of a somewhat more sinister campaign. And the Tories have long had Ratman in their crosshairs. So Ratman has been a bugbear of both Labour and the Tories. They see him as a populist politician unwilling to take orders from above. A potted history in 2010, look for Ratman was selected to be Labour's candidate for mayor by party members, but he was kicked out um, and replaced by a candidate favoured by the party machine. Ratman stood as an independent and he won. So he beat the incumbents who were the Labour Party. In 2014, he was re-elected um, by popular vote, again, as an independent. But um, he was then removed by an electoral tribunal, um, which banned him re-standing for five years. In 2022, he stood again, and again, he won. So this latest investigation by central government might be seen as just another attempt to subvert local democracy. It seems like a kind of obvious analysis or assessment of, of what's going on. Of course, though, maybe this guy does deserve all of this scrutiny. It is possible to be electorally popular, to get elected three times against the odds, but be completely corrupt. So we should look seriously at the previous charges that were levelled against Rotman. The mayor first came to national attention in a 2014 Panorama documentary hosted by John Ware, which was released in the run-up to council elections in Tower Hamlets. 
in the documentary where alleged that Ratman diverted £3.6 million of grants to charities run by Bangladeshis and Somalis in return for political support. He also claimed the council had paid money to local Bangladeshi TV station Channel S and one of its reporters in return for politically biased coverage. And he suggested a council-funded local newspaper was also strongly politically biased. But the police said there was no credible evidence of criminality, and so they would not investigate. However, then, Community Secretary Eric Pickles launched his own investigation, which found the council had given money to groups without what they said was proper procedures in place for record-keeping. The council argued this was because they were small grassroots organisations who couldn't be expected um, to do the same sort of level as accounting as, as, as big um, NGOs and organisations. This was the key bit, though, because that ruling then set the wheels in motion for an election tribunal in 2015. Now, that tribunal found Ratman guilty of corrupt electoral practices, which got him removed from office, and that's where he got the the five-year ban from standing. Now, corrupt electoral practices does sound very bad, right? If I hear that someone's committed corrupt electoral practices, I think that sounds like a pretty dodgy motherfucker. But this wasn't corruption as we would usually think of it. Ratman was found guilty of exerting undue spiritual influence on the electorate, and that was by getting the backing of a number of imams. Now, as the vicar Giles Fraser wrote at the time, the decision was based on legislation introduced in the 19th century to keep Catholics out of power. Fraser concluded, the religion being discriminated against may have changed, but the sentiment hasn't. Now, adding weight to that idea, it turns out that the tribunal was overseen by a judge who later wrote for the spectator in support of Donald Trump. Right? So this does not inspire confidence in me. That ruling and the five-year ban that followed, of course, though, would not keep Ruttman in his place. He's back in office um, after being elected for the third time. Um, he has again um, come to national attention and annoyed a lot of people, and um, this time for refusing to take down Palestinian flags which have been put up around the borough. Rivka, I know you've been following this case. Um, the government are investigating Ratman again. Um, what should our audience know? Well, I think it's similar to our last story about um, the safety of MPs, which is to say that I completely agree um, that it is a sensible idea for the government to make sure that councils are not misspending taxpayers' money, generally, as a principle. The question is, why are they doing this to Rahman in particular? And I think you've set out quite well some of the reasons here. I think the overarching reason is that, look for Rahman, you know, despite being probably not known to most people in this country, is one of the most powerful Muslims in the UK. He presides over a, a budget of over a billion pounds in a incredibly um, densely populated inner London borough with a large Muslim population, one that has made Tower Hamlets a target for the far right since Forever. I mean, it's, you know, an area that's always been home to many minorities, hence why uh, the Battle of Cable Street happened there between uh, British fascists and uh, the local minority populations, predominantly Jews. Um, but basically what I'm saying is that Lutvaraman presides over an area that is seen as the kind of hotbed um, of Islamification in Britain by the far right and by people like Michael Gove, who are far right adjacent and are also concerned about the rise of radical Islam in Britain. He also happens to be someone who um, 
isn't willing to simply take orders. And the Labour Party, when he was a member of the Labour Party and he was leader of the Labour group in Tower Hamlets back in the late 2010s, wouldn't simply um, be a vote bank, basically. Wouldn't do what most other ethnic minority politicians are expected to do in the Labour Party, which is just usher in all the votes and kind of mostly keep their heads down. He has a bold agenda. He's, you know, pretty left wing. He's a socialist. He's introduced free school meals. He's, um, you know, restored the educational maintenance allowance as um, when he was first mayor in 2010 to 15. He built more uh, council homes than any other area in the country. You know, he's he's a pretty pioneering mayor, given, you know, his his powers are relatively limited. And so as a result of this, he's been a target, not just uh, of the Labour Party, who initially wanted him out of the party and then saw him as a rival once he'd left, but also for the right wing press who love to pick on a powerful Muslim and for the far right. And this was just a kind of, this has been a perfect storm basically for years and years. And the closer Rahman gets to power, uh, the, the the more intense these kind of attacks get. So you, you have this kind of build up of pressure in the kind of early 20, late 2010s, early um, uh, late 2000s, early 2010s, when Rahman is leader of the Labour group and then mayor, first saying that he's an Islamist and then saying that he's corrupt. This leads to the John Ware documentary, which in turn leads Eric Pickles to send in um, investigators, which then kind of somewhat has a, has a connection to the election tribunal, which removes Rahman from office in 2015. Okay, so then he's banned from office five years, comes back in 2022, because he's incredibly popular with constituents in the area, not because he's unduly spiritually influenced them, but because they genuinely think he's representative of them. But then exactly the same thing is now is now happening. It's a kind of rerun of 2014-15. He's got close to power again. Uh, the the, the right-wing press don't like it. The Labour Party doesn't like it. They then feed lines to, to the press. Um, it's then picked up by people like Michael Gove, and he sends in investigators. It's, it's exactly the same dynamic. What's really interesting, just to just to kind of highlight this point, the Telegraph report of the um, uh, investigation, which was published almost immediately after it was publicly announced, so like, where did that come from? Who was lining that up in the background? Is full of quotations from a certain Mark Francis, who's a Labour councillor in Tower Hamlets. Now, if you compare the letter that the government has written to the leader of the, the chief executive of Tower Hamlets with the objections and complaints and social media commentary that Mark Francis has been posting on his Twitter account for months, it's it's a copy and paste job. So you you know, you have to wonder how much is this a kind of convergence, the stars sort of aligning, the Labour sort of disgruntlement with Lutfer as a kind of powerful opponent. The Labour Party has never managed to run against, successfully against Lutfer, except in elections where he isn't standing. You know, that's one of his great points of pride. That the one time where John Biggs, I think of the six times he stood against the Labour Party's mayoral candidate, John Biggs, who was mayor um, in the kind of interregnum, let's say. The one time he's won is where Lutfer was banned from standing. So they hate him. They then feed lines to the media and to the government who then pick up the story because they're looking for an opportunity to attack Muslims. It's their kind of last hurrah as we as we kind of build up to the general election. So it's it's a kind of, I would say it's, it's about kind of mutual back scratching at the expense of the country's most powerful or one of the country's most powerful Muslim po politicians. Let's go on.
Liz Truss is a bit of a joke in Britain, but she's gone over to the United States in a bid for a little more respect. Truss has appeared at the US Conservative Conference CPAC, where she spoke to former Trump chief strategist Steve Bannon. Talk to us about your time as prime minister. It was intense. It was brutal. Did the deep state turf you out with knifing you in the back? Give us the inside details. This is your audience right here. They love Nigel Farage. We love the strong Tories, not too crazy about the rhino Tories, right? (laughs) Talk to us about it. I wanted to cut taxes. I wanted to cut the size of the administrative state. And those people didn't like it. The economic establishment in Britain wanted to keep things the way they were. And they did. They got me. But I have learned from that, Steve. You did. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Was it The Economist that got you? Was it the Financial Times of London? Are these the people we got? They're, this is the party at the, the city the, of London. These, are they the ones that run the deal these, over there? These, these are the friends of the bureaucratic establishment. They are the friends of the deep state. And they work together with bureaucrats, of which we've got many more in Britain than you have here in the United States, to keep things the same. And people in Britain aren't happy about that. They want change. But it's being stopped and that's why we need a bigger bazooka. Everything Liz Truss said there, you'll have heard before, right? She's, she's been a bit of a broken record since she, um, you know, lost her position as prime minister sooner than a lettuce would decompose. But uh, I think the interesting thing here is why she has chosen to do this sort of high-profile event with Steve Bannon, right? Steve Bannon, you know, he's, he doesn't have wide appeal in Britain. Um, but Liz Truss seems to think that sort of cozying up with him is the right thing to do to remain relevant. And, I, you know, I don't think she's going to move to the United States. So I think she wants to be relevant in the United Kingdom and thinks that cozying up with, with, with Steve Bannon is a good way to do that, which I think tells you what is the Conservative Party base becoming? You know, what kind of movement are these guys trying to sort of court and um, you know, meld in the UK? There are a lot of people at the moment who want to bring Trumpism to the UK. And it's not because there's this huge groundswell of, of popular support for Trump. I think they kind of want to create it in a way, out of nowhere. I suppose you don't have to have that many Trumpists to take over the Conservative Party, which is essentially what they want to do. I don't think Liz Truss is going to try and be the leader again, but you know, maybe she would like a top job um, in the uh, you know the shadow cabinet, presumably, if the Tories lose the next election of whoever does take over. Um, GB News were also at CPAC, and Liz Truss appeared on Nigel Farage's show to say this. I feel that Joe Biden needs to be kicked out of the White House. Yeah. I think that is vital for the future of the West. And I have worked in the cabinet under both the Trump presidency as trade secretary and the Biden secretary as Biden as foreign, when I was foreign secretary. And I'll tell you, I felt safer for the West when President Trump was in power. There you are, a British conservative saying nice things about President Trump. And you're right, he actually does stand up for genuine conservative values and he likes our country. And I always think Biden rather loathes us. No, he, Biden seems to be very keen to criticise the United Kingdom. And that's certainly what I found as both Foreign Secretary and Prime Minister. Yeah. He stands up for genuinely conservative values. He's just had to pay millions and millions of pounds um, in, a, in a legal case for sexually assaulting someone. You know, it's, it's really weird to see these sort of UK politicians tying themselves to to the Donald Trump movement, which, as I say, is just not that popular in this country. Um, Liz is also... 
Um, I said, sort of, you know, she's decided to appear with Steve Bannon. She is a really big fan of the guy, it seems. Is she tough enough to turn England around? I think so. Hold it. Would you work with Nigel? I need a few more friends, though, to be <laughs> frank. I need a few more people to help me. So, Steve, no, if make, you're willing make, to come over to 100%. Britain... First so off, once you've sorted might be, out, might, once you've might, sorted out America, you can come over to Britain I, I and sort out Britain. I may be banned in Britain. Would you <laughs> think of working with Nigel on maybe restructuring the Tory party? I will work with whoever it takes to make our country successful. I will work with whoever. Amen. And Nigel, and I've done an interview with him already today, I would like him to become a member of the Conservative Party and wow. help turn our country wow. around. Ruth, I want your views on this. It does seem like there are a lot of people in and around the Conservative Party who have decided that now is a good time to try and you know, do what Trump did to the Republicans to the British Conservative Party. Now, there might be, you know, as there were in the Democratic Party in America, sort of some Labour strategists licking their lips. You know, if, if the Tories go into opposition and become the crazy party, um, there, there are many ways in which that is beneficial um, to Labour. But it obviously also comes with some, some risks. Um, I mean, what's your interpretation of what Liz Truss thinks she's doing here in the United States? Well, Michael, she's trying to break America, <laughs> having already broken the UK economy, I guess. This is the thing that UK politicians now seem to do. They they sort of torch their careers in the UK. I mean, it began with uh, Nick Clegg, of course, um, his famous voyage over to, to Silicon Valley after he disgraced himself in in the in the coalition. But then I think um, you know we literally saw just a few months ago, Suella Braverman um, head straight to America after she resigned um, as Home Secretary. And I suppose it's that they're trying to find their people and and sort of um, a readier um, and and sort of healthier base for, for what they're trying to popularize, which, as we know, is this kind of popular conservatism or popcons, um, I think they call it. So, you know, I think there's there's something there about um, going to America to demonstrate that, well, look how far ahead the US is, you know, compared to the UK in terms of there are loads of people here who support Trumpism and look how look how ready they are to import it to the UK. And like, I'm not just a, a kind of right wing fringe lunatic here. I'm just kind of one of the one of the many. Um, so I suppose it's sort of trying to project the UK forward into um, a possible future and sort of a what they perceive, I suppose, as a sort of right wing utopia, which I guess the US is by, um, you know, many assessments. Um, I think we should also pay quite close attention to the to the terms that um, Liz Truss is using, indiscreet as they are. When she talks about a bigger bazooka and she says that she needs more friends, I don't think she's talking about friends and weapons. You know, she's talking about money. Um, she's, she's trying to fundraise. This was essentially her pitch, probably not on her own behalf, as you say. Not She's probably not going to be... Uh, a, a Tory leadership candidate anytime soon. Although, you know, you never know if there's if there's an actual split within the Tory party and the Popcons become a party of their own, um, then maybe that's a that's that's a feasible scenario. But I think um, what's equally likely is that the Popcons will do kind of fundraising of their own, whether or not that's sort of within the uh, remit orbit of the Electoral Commission is I suppose, to be determined. But, um, you know, they're, they're trying to fundraise. And we know that American uh, right-wing kind of ideologues, both Christian right, secular right, are are kind of lining up, with, you know, to open their wallets. You know, I think that there was a, um, there was, uh, reporting in 2019, you know, from Open Democracy, showing that the American Christian right had sunk something like 50 million dollars into European um, 
you know, electoral races across the continent. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're if they're kind of looking to looking for places to funnel cash um, as the elections approach. This is obviously a big election year, not just in their country, but in ours. And they, I think that Americans understand, um, and certainly the kind of organized right understands incredibly well um, the power of sort of international coordination and joint mobilization. When we talk earlier in the show about uh, pickets outside abortion clinics, these were not so prevalent until recently, but the Christian right has organized more and more on issues like this. Um, and so I, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if trust has gone there with quite a hard nosed desire to just kind of basically raise cash. But then, you know, I think it's also true to say that on the kind of softer side, trust is there to, to sort of force a realignment of the Conservative Party to, to sort of show that, you know, whilst her, I, you know, whilst her um, premiership may have sunk the economy uh, for a time and perhaps for, for some time to come, um, her ideas are not discredited and have a political home, um, not just in America, but within the Conservative Party. And so I think there's something to do with kind of building credibility for what should be obviously a entirely discredited ideology. She might be there to sort of try and raise some money for a political campaign. She's also there to try and flog her new book, 10 Years to Save the West, Leading the Revolution Against Globalism, Socialism and the Liberal Establishment. And it says Liz Truss, former Prime Minister of Great Britain, it should say in brackets for 44 days. And you've got Boris Johnson, Liz Truss is right that the last thing any of us needs now is more socialism, more taxes and more regulation. As I say, she was, well, was she our Prime Minister for 44 days? She now wants to fail upwards and, and lead the whole West. Um, so... I mean, China will be licking their lips. Um, we are <laughs> The decline of the West will come much sooner than it otherwise would if we let her have anything to do with it. Let's go to your comments. Literary paracosm. Thank you, Navara, for the wonderful coverage with almost 3,000 watches, but 500 likes. Let's remember to leave a like and comment to help boost the channel. We love your likes. We love your comments. We would also love your financial support. This platform um, this channel is all funded by you guys, our viewers. Um, if you do want to support us directly, you can go to navaramedia.com slash support if you already have. Thank you so much. Um, if not, do um, consider setting up a, a direct debit or a standing order um, for as, as much as you feel you can afford. Next story. You probably don't recognize this man, but he's one of the most powerful men in British media. Sir Paul Marshall is a hedge fund manager reportedly worth £630 million, and he's the owner of news website Unheard and the co-owner of GB News. He owns 42% of the station. He was also one of its key initial investors. Um, he now wants to buy The Spectator and The Telegraph, which would give him just enormous control over the conservative media in this country. But Paul Marshall appears to have some rather unsavoury views. A Hope Not Hate investigation has found some rather shocking content on Marshall's private and anonymous Twitter account. Among tweets liked by Marshall are this. So you can see, UK has lost its identity. These people did not come to assimilate into European culture. They came to conquer and replace British people. Allah wants this. That's sort of the great replacement theory. They've come here to conquer and replace British people. Um, he's also like this one. It is just a matter of time before civil war starts in Europe. The native European population is losing patience with fake refugee invaders. So talking about a civil war, so it's very sort of violent imagery 
um, that this sort of conjures up. And then here, if we want European civilization to survive, we need to not just close the borders, but start mass expulsions immediately. We don't stand a chance unless we start that process very soon. So these are all the very sort of extreme tweets that have been liked by this man. And um, he also retweeted this very extreme. So this is Carl Benjamin, so Sargon of Akkad, Akkad, sorry, he sort of said basically and then shared um, this quote, Pascal's wager in the 21st century. God may or may not be real, but the other side is so passionate, so committed to worshipping Satan, evil, homosexuality, and corrupting children, that even if God wasn't real, believing in him to fend these demons off is preferable. So fairly scary stuff. These are some very extreme views being promoted by one of the most powerful media moguls in Britain. And by chance, I happen to have been booked to appear on GB News the day after Paul Marshall's Twitter activity had been revealed. Um, I was on to talk about Suella Bravman's fear-mongering article about Islamist extremism taking over Britain, but I couldn't help but bring up how, when it comes to GB News, the extremism is often coming from inside the house. She's been banging this drum for months and yeah. months and months, and it's why she was sure, sacked. Sure, so and, I, not... and I, think it's a, I think it's a very bad drum to be banging, right? I have a problem with um, Islamist extremism. I also have a problem with far-right extremism, right? And Well, 90% not, not, of, of suspects on the terror watch list in this country are Islamist extremists. So two MPs have been killed in the past decade, one by a far-right extremist, one by an Islamist extremist. Now, as you've sort of recognised there, I think one problem with Islamist extremism is it has led to more acts of terrorism. My problem with far-right extremism is it has way more access to power. And I have to say, GB News, I think, is an example of this. So there was a, uh, an exclusive yesterday, actually from Hope Not Hate, sort of showing who, what tweets that was a load of your owner had liked and retweeted. You know I think it probably is worth half, reading half them out. Half those tweets, half those tweets, the majority of normal thinking people in this country okay, well, let's, agree with. Let's test, let's test it. Let's see what the way, hope, can I say let's something? Hope it. not hate as well. They call themselves an anti-extremist organisation. They are some of the most extreme far-left right, well, agitators. Let's, and let's read the tweets. Read tweets let's up. read the tweets. So these are the ones that your co-owner liked. It is just a matter of time before civil war starts in Europe. The native European population is using, losing patience with fake refugee invaders. Now, I'm against violent extremism. Warning about a civil war, a civil war. 7.5% of the British public are Muslims. You know, the vast, vast majority of them, taxpayers, decent people. And he's talking, or he's liking a tweet about a civil well, war. Yeah, this is We've got another one here. Talking, he, he liked to tweet. These are not tweets yeah, that a, he has there's a written. Pattern. Let's, I'll just read one more. Okay. If we want European civilization to survive, we need to not just close the borders, but start mass expulsions immediately. We don't stand a chance unless we start that process and very soon. Do you know, soon. Do you know, so what, do you know what that tweet... Michael, do you know what that tweet was in response to? By the way, so Paul Marshall didn't write that. He just retweeted like, someone I just else. Said. He liked, right. well, this, this one he retweeted. And do, and do you know what that tweet was in response to? Do you know? It was in response to a video of some people in Africa. It was Ross Kemp interviewing people in Calais so do, who, so, who didn't understand the concept of rape. He was trying to ask them, what happens if you rape a and woman? You, and do you think that's and an the, argument for mass expulsions of people who are already in this of, country? Of, of rapists, yes. Of ra it, 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 there aren't enough rapists to have mass expulsions of rapists. That tweet, right? that he is tweet, talking about people's that ethnic tweet backgrounds. That the centre right was referring to Islamic rapists. One, one more tweet. So this is one he did retweet. Pascal's wager in the 21st century. God may or may not be real, but the other side is so passionate, so committed to worshipping Satan, evil, homosexuality and corrupting children that even if God wasn't real, believing in him to fend these demons off is preferable. Now, as a homosexual, I find that somewhat offensive. Well, so I think, I think if, we are talking, listen, if we are talking about extremism is, in this country, yes, there are some extremist radical Muslims, are not here Islamists, to actually defend but there is themselves. also a channel which is funded by Michael, someone who clearly has very extremist beliefs. 
I do like in a debate when you get to say, let me just let me just read these words to you. Let me just read these words to you. It's sort of a good way of sort of slowing down the pace and feeling like you can sort of assert some 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 control in the room. I mean, there, what was I suppose helpful for me is sort of Ben Leo saying, oh, this is completely normal. The majority of normal, um, the, the majority of things which are like normal people in this country will agree with. Now, normal people in this country don't all think that we need to find God so that we can defeat Satanist homosexuals, right? Which which appears to be the implication of one of these tweets, which was retweeted by, well, you know, essentially, you know, he's not directly their boss, he's not their line manager, but he owns 42% of the channel. So he's going to be very influential in terms of what airs. Let's see what happened next. Clearly People has very extremist beliefs. are not actually here to defend themselves. There is a statement which we will, which we will bring people hope, not hate. I'll, I'll read, not that, here I'll to read talk that statement now. It. So, it's, uh, so Paul bring Marshall. Us that statement, ben. He said in January 2024. Sorry, no, there we go. That's uh, oh, one second. It's a very divisive ideology, which I mean, he seems to be endorsing here, and which is, is so of, which he is so often propounded from this from this TV station, right? It. He seems to be endorsing it. He did not write those tweets themselves. He does have a reply to all this yes. as well. So his, his reply is to say that it's, you know, there's lots of stuff on Twitter. It's a small proportion of what he's been tweeting. Hope Not Hate actually said it's not that small a proportion of what he's been tweeting. And I think it's also, I mean, you've got to look here. If this was isolated... If this is was he not entitled to, to an opinion, though? This is what we exist for, to have a broad range of opinion yeah. and to not shut people down. Yeah, well, so... I mean, so, so we are having a conversation here about extremism, right? And I think one uh, in, always implicit in a conversation about extremism is there is some sort of limit. So you're talking about people who are talking about um, radical, violent Islamism. They should go on the Prevent program, right? I also think that people who think there's going to be some civil war between a small ethnic minority and, I mean, here it's talking about the native population. That, to me, is violent extremism or something that let, let me just read, speaks let, to let, violent I'll, I'll extremism. Now, that was a really interesting part of this debate, right? Because, you know, if, if you find, you know, someone has said something very objectionable, they say, well, they have the right to express that opinion, right? Well, the reason we were having that debate in the first place, right, we were, we were debating the article by Suella Braverman, where she's sort of complaining about people saying from the river to the sea in the streets, right? And they're, they're agreeing, well, they think it's, it's disgraceful that from the river to the sea was, was plastered on the Houses of Commons, because they say that's an incredibly anti-Semitic thing to say. Now, obviously, as we've said over and over and over again on this show, that's not remotely anti-Semitic. To say what you want is a one-state solution in Israel-Palestine, where everyone gets a vote. You know, it's no longer an ethno-state. That is not in any way or form anti-Semitic. But if you're going to say, we need to clamp down on people saying that in the street, and then in the next sentence, you're going to say, it's fine for uh, an owner of a main, major media corporation to be sort of liking and, and retweeting and you know, essentially promoting the idea that we should start mass expulsions immediately, though there's going to be a, a civil war between Muslims and everyone else, or that we need to find God to defeat the homosexuals. Right? <laughs> you, you can't say, oh, from the river to the sea, that's beyond the pale. But these are all perfectly legitimate. Now, I know you're gagging to hear Sir Paul's response, um, so let's look at the rest of the debate. So let me just read Sir Paul's uh, statement. He said, uh, Paul Marshall's account is private, but is nonetheless followed by 5,000 people, including many journalists. He posts on a wide variety of subjects, and those cited represent a small and unrepresentative sample of over 5,000 posts. This sample does not represent Sir Paul Marshall's views. As most X slash Twitter users know, it can be a fountain of ideas, but some of it is uncertain quality, and all his posts have now been deleted to avoid any further misunderstanding. I suppose the issue of representativeness as well. So there are, you know, 7.5% of Britain are Muslims. Um, there is a very, very small minority of those who are violent Islamists. And then how much time is spent in papers such as The Telegraph, which, by the way, he wants to buy, 
on channels such as GB News talking about this apparent Michael. threat of violent Islamist plenty, extremism. There's, there's plenty of time spent on other papers telling the opposite side of this. Oh, no one's defending, no one's defending Islamist extremism, are they? So somebody else will write the opposite in The Guardian. Oh, well, I don't think anyone is in The Guardian saying violent radical no, Islamism right, the opposite is, is, to what is, is the best saying. thing. Right, the opposite to what Suella Braverman is saying. Yes. Well, the opposite being because that we're not heading towards some kind of civil opinion, war. Michael. They're entitled She's to their a, opinion. You don't have to agree with it. We could discuss it. They're entitled it, to their opinion, exactly but I think what we're talking about here is extreme a... views in society, which are somewhat undermining social cohesion. Are you saying there's not I a agree, problem some... in this country? Well, I think there is. A, I think there are some radical Islamists seven, in this country. Seven, seven. Lee Bigby, Sir so David Amos, Mike Freer, I think the idea that, arena bombing. I think the idea... So London I think Bridge the idea, 2017, right. London Bridge 2019, Westminster 2017, Westminster 2020, the Reading attack, Bately Grammar, weekly so, Hamas sympathetic marches through London, from the river to the sea on Big Ben. So there are two People issues... People are concerned there about are two the way issues which need to be separated. There's two issues that need to be separated. So ISIS-style radical terrorism, right? Obviously, absolutely appalling. We need to make sure that the police are clamping down properly on that. The other issue is that there are a lot of Muslims in this country, lots of them very angry about a war going on in Gaza, which I think is perfectly legitimate, who are being smeared as on the same spectrum as the kind of people who carried out the 7-7 bombing. Now, I don't try and say that everyone who voted Brexit, everyone who, ha who wants to stop immigration is, uh, you know, of the same type of person as the person who killed Joe Cox, right? So I think we have to be very careful about generalization. Obviously, violent extremism, a massive problem, but trying to lump a whole ethnic minority in with a tiny, tiny That's minority of violent doing, extremists, so I think is very, very dangerous. Okay, Michael, we're gonna have to leave it there and breathe. <laughs> nice debate, lively. And breathe. So you saw him then lump in from the river to the sea, projected onto the House of Parliament with 7-7, like a terrorist attack that killed shed loads of people. Right? The conflation is just completely bizarre. I do think that on the left, there can be a tendency to, to do a similar manoeuvre, which is to sort of say anyone who wants to reduce immigration, anyone blah, 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 they are essentially the same as a far-right terrorist. Um, or, you know, it's, it's just this slippery slope. The far-right terrorism is sort of just the real face of the conservative politician. And I also think that that's important to resist. It's important to say it's 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 perfectly fine to fundamentally disagree, but we need to demarcate disagreement from violent extremism. And that's something that, you know, GB News are intentionally failing to do there when it comes to pro-Palestine protesters. And I would say um, that these tweets, which have been liked and retweeted by the, the owner of, of GB News or the co-owner of GB News, I think they fall into that category of, you know, extremism. And, you know, he would argue all this. It's not saying um, we should have a civil war, but is it just a matter of time before civil war starts in Europe? The native European population is losing patience with fake refugee invaders. Now, this is a tweet, again, he's liked it. He hasn't, you know, he hasn't written it himself. But to me, that conjures up lots of violent imagery, right? That, that, that doesn't seem to me a sentiment which is opposed to violent extremism. First of all, if we're going to talk about extremist views, Paul Marshall's um, quote in his statement where he talks about Twitter as a fountain of ideas, I mean, he must be literally the only person who thinks that at this point. Lock, I mean, lock up the guy. He clearly also is. What's really funny is that he's like, just obviously a boomer. He's locked his account. He thinks no one's watching. He's tapping away on the iPad and then like, boom, you're, on, you're, you're in hope, not hate. He clearly didn't expect to be overheard, let's say, uh, liking those tweets, which is why he um, 
rapidly uh, removed them from his profile when he was caught out. But I think it's useful in a way, his kind of boomerish ignorance of, of technology, because he's just kind of given us a, an insight into some of that. Well, not that we need, not that we need one, but he's exposed the sort of you know, ideological extremism underpinning GB news. And I think that that we should we should put that to them again and again. And I think, you know, it's interesting at the end there, you have uh, your hosts saying to you, great, good debate. You know, it's always, it's, it's good to have you on, Michael. And, and they love having you on and they love having Aaron on and they love having kind of left wingers on. And, you know, we've talked about this in the past. We have our, our differences about that. It is obvious watching that clip and looking at the, the the tweets that left wingers are invited on so that they can say they have a good debate, so that they can say that they have a spectrum of opinion, and so that they can claim to be representing, um, you know, common sense, British common sense. When actually they're they're obviously uh, pushing an increasingly extreme and and sort of mainstreaming an increasingly extreme opinion. When Ben Leo says, you know, this is what right thinking people think, or when Paul Marshall likes a tweet that says uh, people are getting angrier about this, these sorts of observations are designed to cross the border into persuasion. You know, the media manufactures consent. Anyone that's read there, Noam Chomsky knows this. You know, we we know how it works. That that places like GB News, places like the Telegraph, put out what are ostensibly observations or opinions over and over again in a way to make people believe that this is the truth. Obviously, we saw this notably with the uh, Labour anti-Semitism crisis where people thought that there was something like a hundred times more anti-Semitism in the Labour Party than there actually was. It represented something like 0.1% of uh, of the membership. Uh, but because of the, the kind of blanket wall-to-wall media coverage of, of the quote-unquote crisis, people thought that this was an extremely severe threat. Exactly the same goes with um, Islamist extremism, which, as you, which, as you say, and as Ben Leo points out, it's not it's not uh, non-existent in this country. But nor is it actually the fastest growing threat to this country. You know, both in terms of terrorism, we know that the Metropolitan Police um, reported a few years ago that the far right is actually the fastest growing terrorist threat. But also, as you say, in terms of its access to the corridors of power, and I think that's that's where this this whole um, kind of debate really falls apart about extremism. Because when people like Ben Leo talk about extremism, they're talking about um, terrorists, active terrorism, people acting kind of in in sort of um, as, as individuals outside of any kind of state structure. But what happens when individuals who were convicted as terrorists, such as Itamar Ben-Gavir, are elected into government? Or people who hold extremist ideologies, like Suella Braverman, are in the halls of power. What if they then begin to execute from their desks, you know, kind of bloodlessly, apparently, these these kind of enormously um, devastating policies um, that that murder, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people in Gaza or send bombs to abet that that murder or to Syria to abet their bombing of, of Yemen. Um, what, what happens then? Are, the, are those people terrorists? Are those people extremists? Or are, are extremists only people who sit outside of the apparatus of the state? And I think that really is the question that we, we need to be asking people like Ben Leo over and over again.
I definitely take your point with Ben Gavir. I mean, is is Suella Braverman really a terrorist? I mean, I, again, I feel like then we are sort of ending up sort of saying people we disagree with are, are extremists who would be on the pale, and you know, I'm not sure that's necessarily a healthy thing to be to be doing. If she were elected, what what could she do that you would think of as sort of terrorism? We talk about austerity and the kind of um, the invisible violence, the bureaucratic violence of austerity, for example. You know, it is one thing blowing up uh, a stadium or a bridge or, um, you know, going about with a knife and stabbing people. But what about the over 100,000 people who died as a result of the austerity policies introduced by the coalition government? What about the people who were um, deported to countries that they'd never lived in because the the Home Office uh, sort of lost their landing papers? You know, we have to ask ourselves, what is violence? What constitutes violence? Is violence simply when I approach someone on the street or when I detonate a a bomb that's strapped to my chest? Or is violence when I sign off a policy, you know, me myself, I don't have to go out and murder anyone. All I have to do is sign off a policy that will kill thousands of people, maybe even millions of people, both in my own country or in a foreign country. Is that murder? Is that violence? This is somewhere where we do disagree. Maybe this is also sort of like speaks to why I you know, spend more time speaking to to right wingers than, than than maybe you do, which I do think. You know, you do need to make a very explicit distinction between political violence. It's illegal. It's outside the democratic process. You are using violence to achieve your political aims, and then someone implementing a policy that you don't like that might have you know bad consequences. Like there, there are always going to be trade offs when it comes to policy making. So you can't sort of, you know, someone could point to a left wing government and say, "Oh, these, you know, your 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 policies have had these bad consequences for X Y Z person," and so therefore, you know, everything's all the same. Uh, a policy that might cause the death of someone is the same as going into the middle of a, a city and, and and blowing yourself up. I actually think that this whole sort of merging of these two things and blurring the lines um, that sometimes the left does is a mistake. Where I would agree with you on Ben Gavir is because. The, the violence that is being done is not to people who are part of the democratic process, right? It, it's being done to to another people who are, you know, that is an act of completely illegitimate political violence because it's being done to to Palestinians who who don't have the vote, say, right? So, I, 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 yeah, I, th- I think where we disagree is on this idea of, I, I don't think we should merge everything into, into political violence and sort of say policies we disagree with have suddenly become terrorists because... Yeah, I think that's a sort of slippery slope and where we tend to lose the argument. But I'll give you the final word on this. You're right. It's There's a difference between legality and illegality. But I think that we also need to understand what, what the actual effects of, 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 of policies are and the fact that, you know, when you talk about people being involved in a democratic process, you know, the UK um, citizens that are subject to austerity, part of a democratic process, Palestinians not... This is not a binary distinction. This is a sliding scale. To what extent are disabled people, marginalized people, people on benefits, people of color actually part of Britain's democratic processes? You know, many international observers, um, including from places like the UN uh, and, and places that I'm sure you'd respect, Michael, have suggested that we don't have a, a, an equal society in which everyone is equally part of the, the democratic process. We have systems of, uh, you know, when 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 Ruth Wilson Gilmore defines racism, she just she describes it as a proclivity to premature death. You know, this is not just uh, people being mean to each other on the street. This is people subjecting another people to a system that ultimately will 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 kill them sooner than sooner than people who aren't subject to it. So I think, you know, I definitely agree that stochastic acts of violence are much more spectacular and much more 
outrageous and disgusting because they're visceral. And when they're projected into our kind of living rooms via the news and we see someone, um, you know, actually attacking another person, it's so much more kind of dramatic than someone being denied benefits and dying two weeks later. But really, what is what's the difference at the end? At the end of those two processes, you've got two dead people. I said I'd give you the last word. I stand by my uh, commitment. Um, thank you, Ripka, for joining me tonight. Thanks so much, Michael. And thanks for giving me the last word. We can take <laughs> it up uh, after the show. Uh, thanks to all of you for tuning in. Um, come back on Monday. Have a fantastic weekend. You've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navarromedia.com slash support. <laughs>